Person of Interest Podcast, episode number 12, Good Cop, Bad Cop, and Harold. You are being watched. An artificial intelligence, a machine protected by government agencies and deadly assassins, is spying on you every hour of every day. We designed this podcast as a means to share information that will aid in discovering and exploiting anything related to bringing down those who will use the machine to harm and exploit others. If you're listening to this podcast, your number has come up and you're part of our team. Welcome, welcome to Person of Interest Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Person of Interest on CBS. In case you didn't pick up on that subtlety in the podcast title. You could miss it. You could. It's possible, I suppose. I'm Daryl, and I just put a fresh set of batteries in my taser, Doug, so watch yourself. I'll behave. And of course, then I'm Doug, and I've just finished repainting my walls. Thank you very much. Mm. Very good. No bullet holes. That, well, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, I tell you what, if folks, if you don't join us for the live show on Thursday nights, you're missing out because if you're not here tonight, <laughs> you are not seeing Doug in his crocheted bearded self, nor are you. And I was so inspired by your crocheted beard. I had to find and put on the only crocheted thing I have, which is my Jane Cobb hat. So we are crocheting it up tonight. That's right. I, and my, my, my daughter did this for me for Christmas. So it's a, it's a classic. I love it. I'm going to hang on to it. What are we doing here? We are covering, as we said, Person of Interest, the episode for Season 4, Episode 12, which originally aired January 13th, 2015, entitled Control-Alt-Delete. Should we talk about our thoughts on the meaning of the title before we move further? Or, or sure, do you want to no, save that? no, let's do it. Because yeah. I had a couple of three different thoughts. Some of them I liked, some of them I, I didn't. Uh, obviously, with the name Control-Alt-Delete, you mentioned this last week in our spoiler section that that probably was some sort of tie into Control being back in, in the episode. And I certainly think that that's the case. But when we think about control alt delete and how it's used on a on a computer it's meant to usually people do that to to either stop something you know you hit control alt delete so you can get the task manager up and stop something that's frozen or you want to restart something because the computer is is not working properly and so i i, I bring that up because the the show I saw it in uh, Matt Fowler's blog over at IGN and also in an interview that Matt Fowler did with the two showrunners. The, the, the verbiage hard left was used in both of those uh, pieces that Matt Fowler did this week. And I've, I have missed out on the Matt Fowler blog for the last three episodes. I think I've, I've forgotten all about it today. I remembered. And I think I, when I read that, I thought, Hmm, maybe that's another tie into control. Alt delete, not necessarily a reboot, but a hard direction in a different way. We got to see behind the man behind the curtain in this case. We used to call her that the man behind the curtain mm-hmm. before we knew anything about her. And we did. We got to peek behind her, the curtain into her little world this, this week. And it really took the show in a direction that we didn't see coming. And so, you know, we could kind of, in a, in a way, that's why I say, I don't know that I like these, but uh, in a way, kind of, kind of look at that as a, as a, not a full reboot, but a redirection. How's that? 
I like that. I like that. It's interesting that this was, in a sense, very similar to it was more the um, the administrative view of last season's relevance when we first met Shaw. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now in this, uh, this where we see behind the scenes in the the relevant world, we see more of we saw the Shaw with the agents and all that stuff and, and, and what they were doing. We didn't see too much of the hierarchy, and that's why the ma'am behind the curtain was such a reveal later on. But here we see it strictly from uh, from their perspective, and a little bit from the agents as well. But it's it's really what's going on with uh, the Samaritan uh, folks and and how control deals with them. And so, yeah, I think it's it's kind of a change there. But it, it also, you see, once again, it, we're, I have a feeling that maybe Shaw is not long for this world because we. We meet her in relevance, where we see this side of the equation, mm-hmm, and we have mm-hmm. another one here at the end where it seems like she's dead, maybe, and you know, control seems to give us uh, some hope there. But it's kind of bookending the other end of her time on POI, so maybe that's what's going on. That's true. It it is a nice bookend, although I'm I'm of the opinion that we have not seen the the Shaw, the last of Shaw uh, alive, but it, that certainly is full of speculation at this point. Um, another possibility on the title that I thought of is thinking about control. Her her mindset, I think, was altered in this episode, but she still deleted the guy at the end of the. And that's a huge stretch. It's kind of playing on three different things that happened that aren't necessarily tying. Because you would think if she was altered, she wouldn't have deleted the guy at the end. But I do think that she was altered in this in this episode. So I like those those first two. No, points, I think, I, and I had that. Some of that uh, thought a little earlier today too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. Good. We're on the same page then. So a fun, a fun episode. Uh, we'll get to our ratings in just a minute. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that, but we'll, I don't want to get ahead of myself nope, there. Nope. So, yep, not yet. I think we before we do go any further, I kind of derailed us there a little bit, but we do want to remind folks that this is a Golden Spiral Media podcast production. It is, and uh, we would love for you to uh, support if you like what we're doing here at the at Golden Spiral Media with this podcast. We invite you to help support us over at goldenspiralmedia.com slash Linda. That's Linda with a Y. Linda is a, a fabulous online learning community. They have all sorts of thousands of courses from any category you can dream up. And uh, all taught by professional teachers, videos you can learn on your tablet, your PC, your mobile device. There's really no reason not to uh, further educate yourself and take your skills to the next level by uh, taking advantage of what they offer at Linda. So go over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash Linda. That'll redirect you over there to them. You'll get your first 10 days of learning for free. You know, I got a cousin, Linda. Do you now? I, I I had no idea. <laughs> she's a pastor. Oh, really? Yeah, she's a pastor. Yeah, and and like I said, she also dresses up as a Klingon for a Star Trek convention. So you know, you've, she's very very uh, you know diverse uh, interests. You know, you mentioned that last week, and I you said I wonder if they have Klingon over at uh, Linda. And I, I when I was listening to the podcast the next day, I thought I'm going to go check that out. And I went over to Linda, and guess what? Why? They don't have oh, okay. Klingon. Wow, I was going to be really surprised. Maybe, but hey, your cousin Linda could get a hold of the folks at Linda, and if she can get herself authorized, which is ah. possible, she could teach a course on teach Klingon. Teach a course in Klingon, yes, kapla. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what that means, but... that That's the only Klingon word I know, and I don't even know what it means, yes. I see. <laughs> 
All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the writer of this episode, which was Andy Callahan, and the director, which was Stephen Surgic. I didn't look up to see what these two guys had done, even though their names are familiar. They're definitely part of the POI team. Off the top of my head, I'm not familiar with the exact episodes they've worked on, and I didn't look that up. Did you? No, and they they are different from the uh, the other. I think the other two. I don't think the first two were. But well, the first two were written by the same people, same person, I believe. The last one wasn't. And this didn't really, I don't know, didn't really uh, hit me as a third part of the trilogy, really. Uh, That's, it's just yeah. kind of launching into a new era of, you know, the, the main thing we're trying to do at this point of the season is look for Shaw and find out what's going on. And I think that's going to be continuing on. And so it, it just didn't seem like really a trilogy ender so to speak uh we had like a maybe essentially a two-parter and then we like you said took a hard left and we're doing something else here well that's that's exactly how i felt about it too and it did cause me to to score it down just a little bit not that i didn't like the episode i I did but when i think of the third part of a trilogy it, it i feel like it should have some sort of conclusion and while this certainly picked up right where the previous episode left off it didn't feel like a, a bookend to a trilogy. It felt like it was there was still more to come, like there should have been a four parter or something like that. So I agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just didn't it just wasn't there. And mine mine was a little lower due to that as well. Yeah, okay. All right. What were the overall uh T V ratings this week? Well we uh were one point seven for the demographic rating, which is tied for uh the fourth uh fourth place that night, and that's the same uh, rating we had last week. And we had 10.16 million viewers. That was third place behind the lead-ins to POI on CBS, NCIS, and NCIS LA. So they had the first, the highest two, and then we had the third uh, behind them. So that's that's not bad. CBS is kind of ruling Tuesday nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 10.16 million viewers is the third highest this season so far. So uh, a lot of people did tune in to catch the uh, the finale of this trilogy, quote-unquote, and uh, so that really did bring in the, bring in the folks. Now I wonder how many of them had to go back and catch up in that, you know, isolated episode out in December. Going, hey, wait, what happened here? Yeah, yeah, that that's true. And now we're sitting here looking at a couple of weeks off. We're not going to have a new episode of Person of Interest until February third. And again, I, I'm hit sitting here scratching my head, going, why did we have the one episode in December? If you mm-hmm. were going to take these time this time off in uh, January. Why not take the extra week off in December? Now, next week, I believe, is the State of the Union address, and I, you know, I get that, but I still think it would have been made more sense to have the three because there was still a gap between episode one yeah. and episode two. So yeah. why not make a gap between episode two and episode three? I, I don't know. I don't know. There might be something the following Tuesday that I'm not aware of, but it's just a little bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, pull in the crowd for episode one, and you know, don't lose them in the middle of you know December. Get right. them, you know, when we're, okay, we're starting over, here's our mid-season, you know, uh, pilot essentially mid-season beginning, and then, you know, a couple of episodes, and then really keep them holding on for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, that's why, maybe that's why I'm not a, a TV exec. That's right. Easy. It's easy to, to speculate from the chairs that we both sit in. That's right. Well, we got some great feedback f- about last week's episode. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, man. We, uh, last week was such a good episode that we have gotten more feedback this time for the previous episode than we ever had. And it's actually kind of, um, uh, it's almost as much as we got for this week. 
But I'm going to start out with uh, with Jenny. Jenny wrote in, she said, A quick note on last week's episode, If Then Else. I was thinking the reason the machine did not predict Shaw's arrival, you know, when she showed up at the, uh, at the stock exchange, was because she must have gotten there using the dark map to avoid detection by Samaritan, which would have also hidden her from the machine. If this episode was indeed the end of Shaw, I am glad they gave her a meaningful send-off. Given that Sarah Shahi would have been at very least taking a break from the show, I'm glad they took the opportunity to write her out properly. When Shahi was in the show Life, I believe something similar happened, in that she was pregnant while the final season was being filmed. In this case, they opted for conspicuously using head and shoulder shots only when she was on the screen to quite irksome effect. I'm glad the person of interest writers did not go down this route. So, yes, it would be kind of odd for, you know, for Shaw... Uh, to get pregnant and, uh, you know, have to deal with uh, that on set, because especially with all the, uh, she, I think she does a lot of her own stunts. Does she now? I think so. I hear Tommy Cruise does a little bit of his stunts. Oh. All right. Well, cool. We also heard from John in uh, WKRP. Hmm. He says, love your POI podcast. I don't know if he went, meant to use that voice inflection with love, but that's the way I interpret it, so we're going with it. I like it, I like it. He says, I've been meaning to share this with you for months now, and with the winter finale, Control-Alt-Delete, set to air tomorrow, it might be my last chance to get in front of the resolution of the Samaritan storyline. Ever since the activation of Samaritan, I've been haunted by the similarities to Save Your Machine, an obscure song David Bowie first released in the 19, on the 1970 album, The Man Who Sold the World. I love that song. I prefer the Nirvana version of that man who sold the world song, not the one he mentions. The one he mentions I'm not aware of. Back to the email. <laughs> the song depicts an omniscient computer entrusted with ruling mankind. At first, everything is great, but the computer becomes bored and disaster ensues. Could this be where the writers are steering Greer and Samaritan? Hmm. Would Samaritan get bored? Yeah, bored, you know overarching ai mm-hmm. wow yes uh, well let me just let me just flick this thing over and see what happens you know it could i mean especially when you if it's entertained by the the thought that hey i made new york run like a you know a well-oiled machine oh the next day i brought destruction oh the next day i crashed the stock market well, the next day it was fixed, although that was technically a team machine that fixed it so <laughs> yeah i could see why uh, uh, um Eagle maniacal. I think that's what I'm looking for. Super oh, oh, yes. artificial um, intelligence. You know, would go and megalomaniac. Megalomaniac. Megalomaniacal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I could see that for sure. Actually. Well, why don't you go ahead and read John's second one? He sent us two this week. Is that what that is? Okay. Okay. He says, while I've enjoyed the menace posed by Samaritan and its agents this season, I feel like something is missing. Namely, what is their motivation? To what end is Samaritan amassing such power and influence over human affairs? And even more importantly, why would so many people seemingly willingly follow its evil directives? Recent flashbacks have satisfied me that Greer is so disillusioned with human governance that he is ready to turn things over to what he believes will be a more perfect ruler. Okay, I'll go along with that. But what about Lambert and Martine? Are they strictly mercenaries plying their trade? How can they participate in this Samaritan takeover with such obvious glee and satisfaction? I get it. I get it. It's just a story, and every good story needs villains. 
I feel like we need more insight into the Martine in into Martine in particular, or her ultimate defeat will be hollow and unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. I trust the POI writers' room will not let me down. How do you feel about that, Doug? I do like that. Uh, that we need to have some sort of a you know the the motivation. I think these uh, writers have been doing a great job with that. Uh, in terms of uh, different characters having a having a good motivation, we talked uh, a lot about vigilance uh, last season, and you know they had a a reason to exist. The uh, Collier, who was a lead man in vigilance, had his motivations. We we explored those. They ultimately came to fruition, although we found out later that he was being a patsy for uh, for Greer uh, unknowingly. So, you know, I think they, I think the writers do, uh, they let their audience, they treat their audience like adults. You know, it's not just, oh, hand wave, these are the bad guys, mwahaha, twirl the mustache and a whole bit. They don't do that. Mm, uh, right. These are people with, uh, you know, multidimensional uh, um, people, not just, you know, cartoon cutout villains. Yeah. You know, I would, I would say though that I wouldn't be surprised if for Martine and, and those types of goons, if you want to call them that, are hired guns. They don't necessarily have a, a, a moral compass that, that, I mean, come on, they're mercenaries, right? Yeah. You don't really look to them for high moral standards. It's usually who has the higher paycheck and they're on the winning team. They're getting to pop bullets into people. That's where how they, that's how they, you know, get their, get their jollies. And so, it could be nothing more than that. I don't really think that Martine and, and those types of people have a vested interest in whether or not uh, Samaritan overtakes the world or Greer is able to help roll out this new superintelligence. I think they have a vested interest in being on the, on the side that ultimately wins. Yeah. Yeah. The winning and that's team. it. Yeah. 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 Okay. We had one more bit of uh, feedback and I thought it was very unique. It was uh, the person was using the name Thicket Dweller. He says, I've been listening to the podcast since the beginning of season four, actually slightly before if you count the preseason episode. And we do. I have been completely blind since March 2009. I've fallen in love with the show Person of Interest. I'm going to, a little aside here, there's a lot of visual stuff in Person of Interest. So, you know, that presents presents a very interesting uh, problem for uh, Thicket Dweller. He goes on, the show is more about concept than action. Typically, action is embedded in the program. I started watching the show in the second season, or more accurately to say I started listening. I typically had to watch or listen to every episode three or four times to figure out what was happening in the non-verbal action sequences or visual prompts. Now, again, you, we get a lot of information about, like, from the machine's point of view. You see the, like, the, the scrolling back to 2003 or 2009 or something like that. So the flashbacks are, uh, are, are all visual. You don't actually see what's going, or you, you don't get a, a, an audio cue for that. When last week they did the simplified simulation where everybody starts saying the, the kind of line rather than the line itself. Do you see what's going on in the simulation? It backs out. It jumps to the shot in the uh, coffee room there, and it shows the time running out, and it's in you know time running out. Blink, 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 and then it says simplifying simulation on the screen. No audio, just a little dee 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 dee. So yeah, this this makes it kind of difficult for a blind person to to be able to take that in. Alrighty, so let me move on here if I can figure out where I picked up where I left off. It never occurred to me to turn to a podcast, even though I had been listening to the Fringe Cast while watching Fringe. That podcast did what this podcast is doing now, which is to say that if you, uh, you fill me in on the details, I miss simple things like the coffee pot and if then else or the changing face of the Degas. 
There is a tendency to have episodes with a silent scene giving up visual prompts to the conclusion or the next episode. So I want to thank you for adding an additional depth to the show that I have to, uh, that I have to work for in lieu of descriptive audio tracks being included and a separate audio program channel. The backup of the podcast gives me much more enjoyment, and then the interactive nature of the discussion, such as this message, even more enjoyment to the show. But one fact of the show I find particularly cool is the Twitter account by Bear de Hond, which is a gem of information I would have never gathered if I were not for this podcast. You are welcome, Ticket Dweller. That is a classic little bit of Twitterness. <laughs> Look forward <laughs> to joining the discussion, and what I can say, I... And what I can say, I gave last week's episode 10 elevator override buttons. I will attempt to watch the show live this coming Thursday, Podcaster's Rule. Way to go, Thicket Dweller. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't have known of the Bear de Honed Twitter account had it not been for you, Doug. You oh, get well, the full thank credit you on that. It's a, it, it's a great little thing. And sometimes, when especially when Bear is not involved in the show, he'll have a little... Uh, usually, uh, they'll do things like you know, famous quotes from Aristotle or some philosopher or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, the bear, bear doesn't have anything to do, really doesn't have anything to uh, to contribute as far as the plot goes, but he'll do something uh, something similar to that. So that is, that's a nice little thing they do for, for us fans. Well, I mentioned a little bit ago there was a great interview that IGN had done, Matt Fowler over at IGN did with uh, Christopher Nolan and Greg Plagman. And we're not going to read the entirety of it. There was one question in particular. It's a pretty short interview, really, maybe six questions. So we'll have a link to it in our show notes that you can find over at goldenspiralmedia.com. Uh, this is episode 12 of Person of Interest podcast. So, but here's the question that, that uh, Matt asked them. He says, we all remember the devil's share from season three and how that opened with that Johnny Cash montage showing Reese's revenge. Was the idea to keep Root and Reese off screen here done as a way to make this trilogy different from the last one? Which I thought was a really, really good question. Greg Plegman took the response and he says, Certainly I think any version of doing something like that in the wake of Shaw's departure would feel reminiscent. I think if you started to break up a part of the story, you'd start to feel like you were following a similar step. Jonah came up with the idea to take a hard left turn and go through the looking glass a bit here and look at the relevance side of things and see how all of this might be viewed. And in the fun, having our guys in Team Machine sort of emerge as outsiders in that story. It's really cool. And I think that we also were due to revisit Control. And Cameron Mannheim is someone we want to come back to because it's been half a season since they relinquished power to Samaritan and we haven't really seen how that's gone for that side. Mm -hmm. Very good point he makes right there. And now we're starting to get a glimpse into the insidious grip that Greer and Greer's machine have upon the government. You make that deal with the devil and it's going to be costly. We wanted to see what that means and we think it was time to visit upon that. And, and so... You know, when you see their point of view on that, I, I, di I don't disagree with anything. You know, again, I didn't feel like a conclusion to a trilogy, but I do love that they that they brought what they did in this episode. This is definitely information that I wanted to see at some point on the show. Yeah, it's something that they had to uh, pick up here because we would all be very, you know, interested in seeing, you know, what's going on here. This isn't just being run by, by Greer in his little uh, bare bones 
room with a huge screen on it, there's got to be something going on. The, Nor- the Northern Lights Project, I'm sure it's not called that anymore, especially uh, since they really officially shut that down. I'm wondering what it's called now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they were shut down because of what was because of the surveillance aspect, how is this happening? I mean, it must must be way way off the books. So uh, I, I, right. that's a that's another thing I'd like to see if they will uh, they will uh, tell us about. Yeah, who knows? Well, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever get that little piece of information or not. Well, let's get into this week's episode. What do you say we do some ratings, uh, personal ratings here? I like it. I rate you a, oh, I'm sorry, not that personal. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know what I was trying to say there. It wasn't coming <laughs> out like I, like I imagined into my mind. <laughs> Alrighty, I gave it eight bad cops. I yeah. thought it was, uh, like, as we said earlier on, I thought it was a good, uh, it was a good episode. It was nice to see, again, from the relevant side of things. It was not exactly a third part of a trilogy. It did, you know, as you said, pick up right where the other one left off, but we've had that happen before where they weren't necessarily mm-hmm. uh, a trilogy kind of thing. But anyway, uh, so it was a solid episode. I liked it, and it was a, a good insight into Control 8 Bad Cops. How about you? Yeah, you know, I originally gave it an 8.5, but after reading that interview with the showrunners, it kind of helped me understand what they were trying to accomplish in the episode a little bit more. So I'm going to bump it up a little bit to a 9 and give it 9 coats of paint. Yeah, half a coat of paint would have been hard to do. Eight and a half coat, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It is hard to do half a coat. It wouldn't wouldn't have had that nice, you know, even look, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we've got a bunch of, uh, uh, try that again, folks. I passed it on to you. No, thank you. <laughs> it's, I'm wearing this crocheted beard. It's making me, you know, itch. Had some more ratings from other folks. Andrew J., so we can, you know, mix, you know, mix, uh, make sure we have them, uh, dis- d- distinct here. Andrew J. called it 10. He gave it 10 rocket propelled grenades. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Andrew, not Jay, gave it nine identical signals. And Alex R., there you are, and just in case there's another Alex out there, he gave it eight out of ten encrypted phone handsets. Those are cool. Mm-hmm. Henry gave it 8.5. Not so, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. Talking about control. Mm-hmm. Zachary, Zachary. Zachary gave it five targets in Detroit. He called it the worst yet. Well, I, we can I, we can go with that. That's fine. Uh, and I understand why some people might uh, might have said that they the big build up and not so much of a payoff. Right. I, I can get that. I don't know that I would call it the worst POI episode, but uh, to each his own for sure. Uh, David gave it nine arrogant Samaritan representatives. Hmm. I, I, I barely handle one, frankly. <laughs> Linda gave it eight and a half anything but angelic Gabriel's and mm-hmm. they haven't actually said his name in the uh, in the show but that's the name of the uh, Samara kid the creepy little kid there Samara kid I like it and Jerry gave it a 9.2 he didn't give us a anything else so let's make one up um, he gave it 9.2 stock market crashes. All right. Stock market say, recoveries. Yeah. There you go. That's more appropriate. I was going to say monkeys of doom. 
They have nothing to do to do with the episode at all, but it just sounds cool, right? Monkeys of Monkeys Doom. Doesn't that sound like a video game that you would have enjoyed playing when you were a kid? Yes, yes. Kind of the, you know, kind of the uh, sequel to, to Doom, now the, the, the Monkeys of Doom. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, or maybe it's a maybe it's a mod you could get to turn all the people into monkeys. monkeys. There you go. Yeah. All right, man. Well, let's discuss the uh, stuff. Man, we, this is uh, we've, we're thirty minutes into the episode here. We've got a lot of great <laughs> stuff we've shared from the listeners. Uh, we've got more to come from the listeners. Uh, let's take our share of this episode. I don't know if it's the devil's share or not. We'll let the audience decide that. But uh, where do you want to start? I loved the intro by control. I thought that was that was a fantastic way to let us know. Yes, that's exactly what you're going to see, folks. Uh, it's the because you know she's she didn't build the machine. You are you are being watched, but she is you know behind those screens. The government has a secret system, a machine that spies on you every hour of every day. Now you know. Not she didn't get to the part where she says I built the machine because such and such because she didn't. Right, but right. it uh, it was a good you know you know punch right in the beginning to say wait a minute something's different. I like that and the opening here with her with her daughter. It's nice to know that she's you know we're seeing a little more of her backstory, her family life, and when we see a daughter in the back seat, it's like yeah there could be you know a bit of uh, that somebody could use that as leverage now. Well, yeah, as soon as we saw the daughter in the car, I thought, oh, there we go, leverage, that's going to happen. And we did get a little bit of, that, bit of that later on in the episode. But I didn't think that that was the only reason they showed the daughter, and nor was it the only payoff that we got in this episode with uh, Control and her daughter. Because you think about what we saw later on in the episode, particularly when Control herself, she didn't call out Crimson Six to take down the last guy. She took down the last guy with her own bullet. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think about that, it's, you know, that little girl who's, who's playing war game or, or this shooting game on her, on her iPad <laughs> and, and, and control is saying, Oh, you shouldn't play those, those games. You know, yes, mom. It's really interesting. And it, and it shows her as a mom. It shows, but I think it also shows that probably at the core of who control is, her kernel, if you will, hmm. is that she was she is believing and she is trying to make the world a better, safer place for people like her daughter, for the future generations. And so it was really a nice juxtaposition that what we had in that scene with the control that we saw really as soon as her daughter shuts the door on the minivan, control <laughs> drives a minivan, you know, <laughs> it was really cool. I thought that was one of the really uh, nice, like I said, juxtaposition elements of this episode. And it shows her motivation as we were talking about, uh, you know, there's a question from, uh, I believe it was Andrew who said, what are the motivations of uh, the acolytes of the of Samaritan? But the the motivation for uh, for control is that she she really does have a, you know, the, the need to, to deal with terrorists. She, she really does want to take out terrorism and keep the people safe and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And she's not too concerned about how it gets done. That's that. That's kind of the. I think that's what the writers are are using as a uh, as as a as a you know to, to say what society is is doing for itself. It's it's allowing some of this. You know, it's a commentary basically. You know, it, it, there's there's the safety issue, but then there's the surveillance issue. Which which you know how far is too far? And so I think that's what they're getting at here by uh, by showing that by showing that the fact that we have people with good intentions. But how far is too far? Right. 
And I loved how uh, one of the things that she says early on, uh, there was, and I forget what the issue was, if there was, if it was terrorist, terrorism, research would have picked it up. So, um, if it was, if, if you know, I, I forget exactly what, the, I just wrote the line down because I liked, I liked that line to show that maybe Samaritan's got a, uh, a bit of a um, blind spot here, or maybe it's Samaritan doing it research you know they they have the same terminology for samaritan as they did for the machine they call it research Mm -hmm. kind of like a department name or something but it's you know it's samaritan it must not be terrorism because she has full faith and i think it's another thing it is showing us that she has you know thrown her faith completely in with uh this uh, machine even if she's a little hesitant about i can't believe this would be the first time she ever got um uh, concerned about what was going on, but this time, uh, you know, we see a little more of the ramifications of uh, her doubting. Well, and I think that if you're going to be able to sleep at night having the job that she has, that you have to put your full faith into research and believe that the information that you're getting from research is accurate. Otherwise, you're out there killing innocent people, and who can who can sleep with it? I don't yeah. think that she is a person with no moral compass. I, I, even though she may be misguided or misinformed at times, I think that, like I said, her kernel is that she's trying to make the world a better place and that she believes the tough job that she is fulfilling is indeed doing that. And so if she, if she doesn't put faith in research, then she doesn't sleep at night because, you know, how could she? Indeed. Indeed. So she has to, she has to, that, that's right. She's just compartmentalized that situation. Mm-hmm. I need this exactly, and it's giving me good information. So I have to trust it. Right. Exactly. Right. So then we get some information about a terrorist group and they are planning to take out the power grid. They're going after all sorts of different historical markers. Trying to go for civilian casualties here. Mm hmm. Really, really interesting scenario that we get to see played out. I love, again, like we said at the top of the show or near the top of the show, we literally got to see the man behind the curtain in this episode. And the curtain is pulled back. We get to look into the scenarios that they go through in their war room, if you will, looking at multiple screens, having multiple inputs. And she has to make the the ultimate call on whether or not to send in the kill team or not. And I, I thought it was really fascinating. There was one point where she asks about the backpack that was left somewhere. What information do we have about the backpack? I forget exactly what the line was. It was rather, it it stood out because she asked for it. She didn't get it. You know, there was an excuse. And I was I thinking that was the Samaritan uh, representative. She kind of cocks her head or like she, you know, cracks her neck kind of thing and says the same thing, asks for the exact same bit of information. Mm-hmm. And poof, there it is in the screen. For a second there, I was thinking, is this a simulation? Because, you know, she, she, she kind of, you know, makes that, I can see the simulation is kind of resetting or something maybe. And the question is asked again, exactly the same way, same words. And then she gets the information. So it's, it kind of, it kind of, I, I don't know if they were trying to do that, get you to question what you were seeing, be given what we had just seen in the previous episode. But that was, that was kind of a hmm moment for me. Yeah. The next big hmm moment was her conversations that that came out of this with Travers. Am I wrong? Is this the first time we've seen Travers? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Really fun guy. Fun's a weird way to say it, but <laughs> I, I, I say that because 
I enjoyed any of the dialogue that he was having. He played smug and arrogant really, really well. <laughs> and and in the smiling, very not jovial but lighthearted way, uh, yeah. when he need, when yeah. he could and when he needed to be was just no, you don't need it. He wasn't stern, you know, or that sort of thing. He was just very matter of fact. Nope, you're not going to get it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, talk about putting your faith in research. Well, he's putting his faith in Samaritan to say, hey. These people can threaten me. They can do whatever they want, but they're not in control. I work for the people who are really in control, and that's what he's putting his faith in to be able to respond the way that he was, and that certainly paid off for him. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what kind of a sweet deal he's got there. Yeah, yeah. But they want to get the contents of a particular hard drive, and he just will not give it to them. And he threatens to shut things down, and he does. Boom. Yeah. All the feeds are down, and thank you very much. Yep. A reminder, a stark reminder to control that... Who's in control? Who's who's in control? That's exactly it. And I love Cameron Mannheim in these scenes. I thought she was fantastic. Uh, obviously, I've bragged on her a lot. Anytime she's been on this show, I've bragged about her. I'm a fan of hers, but really try to put her in her place. It should have been a, a huge eye-opening moment. We're going to talk about these eye-opening moments as, as we talk about or talk through the episode. But, you know, if... In my opinion, Doug, if if Samaritan wanted to continue to be able to pull the wool over um, Control's eyes, it needed to handle this with a little bit more finesse. And that is, sure, something. You know, she's going to think something is up when you refused to to show her the hard drive. When you shut down the feeds and try to play a power play over these hard drives, that's for someone as smart as her and for someone who's not nearly as smart as her, mm-hmm. that's going to cause suspicions to be roused. Right. Yeah. So I think that they should have, if, unless if they want to keep the wool over her eyes, as I said, they probably should have played this a little bit more cleanly. Yeah. And not to, not to raise her hackles. Now, Samaritan may be overplaying its hand. Uh, it that may not necessarily know what kind of a, of course, at this point you would think Samaritan would understand what control, you know, can and can't, you know, handle in, in terms of, you know, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. If I want to quote right. Popeye here, uh, so if you push her too hard, this AI ought to know that there is going to be uh, a problem that you're, that you're going to create for yourself, and there is no need to do that. So, is this is this the hubris we have been seeing in uh, in Samaritan as we see in Dominic? Maybe that's something like that. Exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, I, yes, that's exactly what I think it is. Well, we had a. Uh, they do a raid on the the hideout or the the, the house. It really was not a hideout. They weren't really a terrorist as group as we find out later. Really, but right, right. Uh, they do the raid there and uh, they take out everybody and they realize, oop, there is someone missing. So we've got to do some uh, some looking around now. If you looked at that uh, that that raid, the filming of that happened. I at POI Raiders Room, the POI Raiders Office has a Twitter account. And they tweeted at that moment, we filmed the house raid on Halloween. Okay, so this is way back in October that they were filming this with production assistants stationed on the edges of our set to pass out candy to trick-or-treaters. And <laughs> I thought that was a great little behind-the-scenes uh, thing there that we, you know, the guys are keeping the, uh, keeping the holiday going while they're, you know, shooting up terrorists. Thank you. That is a really good insight. I'm glad they shared that for sure. That's another great Twitter account to follow. POI Writer's Office, I believe it's uh, what it's called. I thought it was Writer's Room. Well, that's the name on it, but it's the actual user's at POI Writer's Office. 
Oh, I don't know why be. they made the change there. It makes it difficult to uh, to to find it. But anyway, so yeah, that's what they that's what they do. So so we get that, and uh, Samaritan is really closing off. You know, continues to um, uh, to close off access to that uh, that virus code. We find out what it is, and it's like. Yeah, like you said, isn't there anything else in the hard drive it could have shown us, you know, or mm-hmm. you know, it obfuscated some of the some of the stuff there, and uh, you know, it doesn't have to. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it could be just. I like it because it it gives us the uh, gives us a uh, look into the personality of Samaritan itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the good thing I guess that it did though is it set off control into because she's not going to be bullied she's not someone who's going to allow that and and at least not try to be bullied so it sends her off into this uh, effort or this mission to work around and to find out what is on that hard drive clearly there's something there they don't want me to see i need to see it and that uh, allowed us to not only see another side of of control uh but it also um got some of these characters interacting in a way that, that made it really fun. Well, it's, it's interesting that, uh, control decides at, you know, having been, you know, slapped back by Samaritan, she starts working the angles behind the scenes mm-hmm. and making calls on, on, you know, lines that I guess Samaritan does not have access to, uh, calls agent grace who allowed Shaw to live at the, uh, at one point, I forget exactly which uh, episode that was. You remember mm-hmm. that one? What the name of it was? No, I don't recall. It was the one where they had broken into the security center. Oh, yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so she's out there making these calls. Now, if Samaritan can't, maybe, okay, can't hear what's going on on the phone, but you would think it could be able to be able to find her unless she knows where Samaritan can't see as well. Do you think she's got information on that? Yeah, I think that she she seemed to be at least aware of the black spots or the black map or however you want to you know uh, term that those places on the on the map where Samaritan can't see. Now, as far as the secure line that she was able to use, I mean, it looked like a satellite phone, but you would think that Samaritan would have access to the satellite feeds as well. But apparently, there's there's something that they've worked together or worked to rig up where. Um, Samaritan Coded. can't see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Harold's got his own network, so it's certainly within the realm of of belief that she would be able to to uh, come up with something as well, or have something on, in place for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the we 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 cut back occasionally to the stock exchange issue because the news reports we occasionally see them on screens and stuff like that. The news reports about the attack that happened there and this crash and the subsequent uh, recovery. And we had a couple of people in ski masks and, you know, for, for, it was obvious at least to me initially that that's okay. That's Reese and that is root. But I thought at some point, maybe that was somebody else. That was part of the, uh, some Samaritan group that they, that had been trying to escape you know, after that. Anyway, I love it when they call Fusco about this and he says, NYPD has a few leads and persons of interest. I see we finally had to work that, <laughs> that term into the, uh, into the script. I loved it. Yeah. I was a little bit confused because as, uh, as we're watching that, I'm going, okay, well that's, that's Root and Reese. Actually, my first thought was, oh, that's Shaw and Reese. No, no, it's not. It's not Shaw. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> it's, it's Root and Reese. But then as it played out a little bit, I thought, oh, well, it, it, it can't be Root and Reese. Uh, what, what part was that that I got? I think I wrote a note on it somewhere. 
But then it turned out that it was Root and Reese. So it had me guessing a little bit as to who these two people in ski masks were. Yeah, I was confused for a little while, too, until they actually physically took them off. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's one that sealed the deal there. And, and then, you know, we've got, we finally get to the the laptop. Mm-hmm. And the fella is just, you know, I, I'm wondering how much of this guy really knows about what's on his we hear a little bit of what he said, and, and maybe that really is all he, he knew. We do a little bit here, somebody, we send it off to somebody else, they do a little bit there, and that way you kind of spread out the uh, the knowledge. Nobody knows exactly what it is, and uh, they can think it's, you know, I don't know, farming you know software or something like that, and then they can move it on, and nobody nobody really knows what's happening. But I was wondering about the... Was that when when it, when the laptop started to burn, and they were saying, oh, it's some incendiary device in it, I was thinking... I wonder if Samaritan just got in there and, you know, overheated the, the CPU, just, you know, did something that would uh, uh, crash the uh, crash the actual physical hardware and just, you know, up in smoke. That's what I think uh, happened. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, we never yeah. actually see that. We never actually get that uh, resolved, but I have a feeling. We've had the burning laptop thing before, right? Uh, did we? I'm trying to remember now. Well, I don't remember exactly when. I mean, we obviously the the first laptop that comes to mind is the China laptop that we saw back in season mm. one, made a reappearance later. Um, but I was thinking we had. Uh, I'm not saying tied into Samaritan. I'm just I was just thinking we had seen a, a laptop go up in smoke like that before. Maybe that was just a different show. I mean, it's been it's been done before. Maybe there was. I mean, Samaritan has has reached in and created an email inside of someone's inbox. You know, yep. you know, from from nothing. So I I wouldn't put it past it if they're at the very least. Not at all. Not at all. So he gets away because of the, the laptop burning, because they need to stay with the laptop in case, you know, in case, I guess. Mm. So he gets away, jumps in the cab, gets away. They track him. Now they, they turn the feeds back on. They track him to the train station. Or no, they didn't have the feeds back on yet, I don't think. I think they had some other information they had pulled. There were three trains. The last one was heading out, and... Control is on his tail. Great little chase scene. Mm-hmm. Then a Jeep comes coming out, and we get the payoff of the Chekhov's RPG from a few episodes ago. <laughs> that, was, that was like almost near the beginning of the season, wasn't it? Was I know. It, was that when Root and Finch were, were, were acting uh, undercover, kind of, and Finch is trying to be the real tough guy? Was that... Yes, that is it. Yeah, because and they then got he, an RPG he, out of that. Yes, they were. They he's like, no, I'm not going to do this. And he like he said, this is not the way I'm going to do business because they were trying to get guns and stuff. Well, then they end up getting the truck at the end of the episode that had all the money and guns and stuff in it. So, uh, so yeah. or, or they were trying to sell the RPG. I don't remember. There was, that's where the RPG came into play. Though, yeah, they, in somehow episode. they 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 come in uh, come into you know possession of it. And it again, yeah. it's one of these things the writers. Will uh, well uh, treating us as adults. The, these RPGs don't you know materialize out of thin air. We mm-hmm. create them in uh, one episode and we pay them off. You know, sometime later down the road is great. And Andrew, who's joining us in the the live show, not Andrew J. Andrew not J. says there was a burning laptop from uh, outside influence in the episode called Trojan Horse, season two, episode nineteen. So we have set a precedent. Yeah. Andrew's got an amazing memory, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I just have a goofy-looking hat. That's my best I can offer this podcast this week. (laughs) That's why we need the chat room. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Andrew, for that. Uh, I love the RPG, though. I did not expect to see it paid off this early in the season. When it came out, it was full on shock because usually it's it's an Act 1 paid off in Act 3. Here it was an Act 1 
you could argue either either paid off at the beginning of Act Two or at the end of Act Three. This is kind of a transitionary period that we're going through, I think. But it was great nonetheless. I loved it. That was fantastic. And then finally, they've got control under control. Yeah, they get her. They roll the car, take her into uh, custody. Some wonderful scenes. I had kind of forgotten exactly had what why had gone down between control and root. I knew that they didn't like each other. I knew that control had done, so, but I forgot about root or, or control being the one that that took root's hearing away until until root kind of you know, re- relived it with her. And I'm like, Oh yeah, Root wants to kill this girl. I was, it was great. Man. I, I loved could, it. I could not forget that because that's the one, uh, that, that that's the one that had the high frequency Morse code coming out of the phone. And Root was able to hear that and talk to, uh, mm-hmm. control and say, you know, the guy over there has got a bum knee and you've got this and the other that. And so she said, and, and I never heard the Morse code. <laughs> I'm so old. That's but, all right. But that was the that was the thing. That was the uh that was and it was I wonder if they used the same set. It almost looked like. I mean, it was the chain link fence all around and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So yeah. So we get her down there and I loved how we have Reese giving her the um talk to me or I'm you know, I'm gonna root come at you here and uh, she goes, Oh, good cop, bad cop. Uh, yeah. Right, right. And his right. line was fantastic. There are no good cops here. Yeah. Spoken I, uh, as only Reese can. Yeah. I liked that the approach that they took. It just, it was great. And when Harold showed up and said, we don't operate this way. I liked that too. It was fitting for him. It was fitting for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they had some great lines. This, this is the, the writers really get to shine when there's not a whole lot of action going on. It's, it's when the, you got the explosions mm-hmm. and stuff that you are, you can, you know, you don't have to worry about the the finesse, the you know, the little uh, the little lines and the little things like that. But one of the things that uh, uh, Root says to Control at one point was, "Could you repeat that? I'm deaf in this ear." You know, it's just this slap yeah. across the face there. And uh, I'm not the monster I used to be. I've changed. Well, mostly changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she has changed. She uh, really has she, changed. Yeah, but, and that is true. That it, it, yeah. it, it gives us a little bit of a, you know, there really is some difference between when she was on the other side of this uh, mm-hmm. exchange and now. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, they, it, it's good to acknowledge that. Yeah, but she still is cold-blooded. You mm-hmm. know, but she has changed. This is where we got the scene, though, where she brings, um, I almost said Cameron's. Uh, um, Controls controls daughter back into play. And when it, when, when it came into play, I'm like, yeah, I knew it was going to be there, but there was, like I said, the whole thing that we get later on with control gave more payoff to that scene with the daughter than just this scene right here. Uh, but it was, it was pretty obvious. I thought when we saw the daughter originally that she was going to come into play as some sort of leverage at some point. Mm-hmm. And this is also the place where Harold kind of lays down the truth to control. You're in the dark. And you're being kept there for a reason. You're just you're just the cleanup crew, the janitor. You know, you you are not in. You know, ba- without saying it, just to barely every everything he could say without actually saying you're not in control. Mm-hmm. So, um, but she's not entirely. It's it just plants the seed. She's not entirely convinced of that. But at least that starts the wheels turning. The the, the gears going and whatnot. And all of a sudden, in come the janitors. Well, the ISA agents come in, but uh, 
but Fusco, you know, is there to you know help with the the cleanup there. Really, he's he's part of the cleanup crew, and Reese and Root uh, deal with things there. And in, and and at some point there, I I liked the fact that uh, whoever Reese was up against, and I can't always oh, it, it was the one it was Agent Grace, and Agent Grace really gave Reese a, a run for his money. Usually Reese comes mm-hmm. in and just bam 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 and kicks a few butts and you know throws a few elbows and everybody's down on the ground. Not this time. It was good to get him there. This has been, this has happened, I think, one other time with uh, HR. There was a fellow in HR who really gave Reese a run for his money. Right. And Agent Grace did, uh, did too. That was good. And that's the way it should be, right? I mean, this guy is supposed to be kind of fulfilling a function that Reese used to fulfill. So it's, it would make sense that these two guys would go mano a mano and, and, it could go either way. And that's really what happened. And, and finally Reese got the upper hand when he, when he got the bar, but the mention of Shaw changed everything. And I thought that was a nice little, a nice little nod because these guys really are on the same team and they just didn't realize it until that point. Yes. Yeah. Maybe and, not and, the same team, but they definitely well, have a similar cause. I guess we could, we could they're, say they're pushing the same agenda. Uh, they, yeah. they have the same, they have the same, uh, you know, ideals that they want. It's just that one doesn't know. It's almost like remember the uh, it's another bad robot production alias where there people who work for SD six really think they're working for the CIA, but instead mm-hmm. they're really working for this you know insidious you know counter spy agency here. Well, that's a kind of the same thing now. You know, the people who are working for Control and Samaritan don't realize they're working for the bad guy. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that you brought that in. That is a very uh, a similar thread in that regard to what we had in Alias. I haven't seen all of Alias, only the first two seasons. We haven't got all the way through it yet, so don't tell me anymore. No, well, that, well <laughs> I, you know what, what I told you was the end of the first season, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If if that it might have been the first two episodes, even some of that. So Finch comes in, tries to put a worm in, which. To me, this is one of the, one of those TV hacking things. You know, anything can deliver a worm to anything and, and <laughs> obtain anything. But hey, it's all right. Finch is obviously a computer genius. He has skills that most of us, you know, aren't even sure exist. But in TV land, they do, and in probably in reality, they do. But they'd have to kill us if we knew for sure. But it was it was kind of. So it was it was Finch being Finch, I thought. And I felt I felt sorry for Finch because he is kind of in the same position I am sometimes. See, I work in computers. And I'm no computer genius like, you know, Harold Finch, not at all. But when when anybody in my family asks, So what are you doing at work? You know, trying to tell them well, this <laughs> is what I'm doing. And and then I like so so Harold is telling Fusco what he's doing, what this worm's gonna do, and it's gonna do this and gonna and Fusco said, sorry, are you talking to me? Yeah, I was like, "Oh man, I'm with you, Finch. I'm with you. You and yeah. me, man, forever." Yes. Oh man, alive. <laughs> I have the same issue with my grandma. She 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 obviously has no idea what a podcast is. Anytime I tell her podcast or or spell podcast, <laughs> she thinks I'm mispronouncing it. So I just tell I say, "Grandma," uh, she'll say, "Are you, are you busy?" And I say, "Oh, I'm working on my podcast." She'll say, "You're you're what?" And I say, my broadcast, Grandma, I'm working on my... Oh, your broadcast. Okay, I thought I misunderstood you. <laughs> you did. That's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Finch's worm finally gets something. And uh, so, you know, all this gobbledygook and all this, uh, you know, talk about, you know, techie stuff. It works. It works. Just just works. Yep. So then we get... Let's see. I don't want to get jump ahead here. All right. So we get the uh, the the scene with control and Saeed, the final terrorist, supposed terrorist. 
He brings up Nautilus, mm-hmm. and I didn't see this coming, but it's so interesting because as I was thinking earlier in the week about about person of interest, I I was and and going through some of the episodes. I don't remember why I was doing that, but I was I was going through some of the old episodes of the season, and uh, the the one about the Nautilus came up, and I thought, oh yeah, I wonder if we're ever going to get that paid off. And boom, here it is. <laughs> Not paid off, but at least it's back into the story. Um, here with this uh, Saeed guy saying, yeah, I was in this contest and I, the Nautilus, and I, I was recruited and all this other stuff. And it was, it was nice to see that brought back into play. But it gives it a twist because I thought that at the end of that, was, it was Panopticon that uh, this was in. I have that, that one I remember. And the girl who had won that, you know, Samaritan mm-hmm. gets in touch with her. And says, you know, he's going to work for me now. Okay, so that these guys did too. And now, Samaritan's taken, you know, these guys, I guess they've outlived their usefulness. He had them do one thing, and now he's killing them, you know. So it's like, well, you don't, it's a game you don't necessarily want to win here. Um, but I would have thought that it would have been good to keep these assets around as long as you can. Well, we don't know why the, the Samaritan chose to eliminate him, but how clean is that, right? You recruit these genius people, you use them for their geniusness, and for at whatever point they become more of a liability than they are an asset, you call in Crimson Six to clean up the terrorists. Mm. That's a pretty good deal that Samaritans got going there. And that's what, and that kind of goes back to what Harold said to about control. You are just the cleanup crew. You're the janitor. Right. These you are other the people that it's been uh, you know recruiting are doing the dirty work. And you're just, you know, cleaning up the, the loose ends so that uh, nobody finds out what's going on. Yeah. Ooh. Now, he says, can you consider for a second the possibility that you've been lied to? Hmm. She contemplates it. I guess she decides no, or she says no, and then bam, kills him. I want to get your thoughts on this, Doug. Here's, here are mine. Because after she pulls, or pulls the trigger and kills him, we see Samaritan's you know, quote unquote point of view, Smerton zooms out and takes us to the next city. We see the graphical overlays where it's Smerton. At this point, because of some of the things I mentioned earlier, when the with the hard drive not being accessible, the getting shut down, some of the things that Harold has now said to her during their conversation, and now what he's saying to her, she's a very bright woman. She has got to be putting some of these dots together. And when he says are you telling me you don't have, you know, even a possibility for a second, even though she says no, I'm convinced internally she's going, yeah, but she knows that Samaritan is watching her at that very moment. And Mm. if she walks out of that cabin and he's not dead, her gig is up. Now she's more of a liability than she is an asset. And Crimson Six or some other equivalent is going to, you know, some semi-truck is going to run her off the road or something. She knows that the only true chance that she has to take down Samaritan and Greer is to play along and be their little puppet for a little while while she can gather intel and a plan. And sadly for Saeed, that means that his life is going to need to end in that moment. That's kind of my opinion. I, I do think that she's now on to him. She did believe Saeed, but she had no better option, unfortunately. Uh, although when she does see her cohort there uh, later on and she says, you know, 854 or whatever the number was, that kind of does seem to be a counterpoint to that. But I think that that's just more that she's still 
playing the facade. What is a facade now? She's going to play her role until and bide her time. What, what do you think? I think so too. I, I, I think that perhaps she is still going to be, if we, if we see more of her, it will be to it, it, where she's trying to flesh this out a little bit more. She, the seeds of doubt have been planted and she has seen firsthand now that this guy is just, is not who Samaritan said he was. So, so either she has gone flipped and flipped completely or she is very nearly there. So yeah, I think that maybe that this is the this is the beginning of the end for for her at least her involvement in with Samaritan and it's she's going to be much more cautious and much more uh you know unsure about what's about the orders that she's being given. Yeah. The flip side of that and this is what Soka 718 is saying in our chat room is uh, Soka 718 says I think control said no because to her because to do her job properly, she has to not have any doubts about the intel. If she's killing 854 people on false or flawed intel, she couldn't live with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So she has to, re- you know, she kind of continue. Are you saying, SoCal, that she's just going to stick her head in the sand and say, no, I can't believe that. I'm not going to chase that because I don't want to know what that what the end of that could lead me to. And so I'm just going to pretend that, that this never happened or, or, or just refuse outright to believe that that's true? Is is that what you're saying? And I think that's a possibility too. Well, and the other thing is at the very end when she visits the stock exchange where this shootout happened and everything looks fine, mm-hmm. she's, you know, looking at it and uh, I think at one point she's going to get, you know, see if there's even dust in the walls. That doesn't even look like it's, it's like it's been recently cleaned. That's but right. she gets paint that come off. The paint. And I think that was the final straw for her. Yeah, I think at, at that point it's like Okay, something just is not right, and we have yep. to. We have me, maybe Harold was telling me exactly what's uh, what's going on here, and so now all of a sudden, you know, her whole world is turning upside down, and she has to uh, she has to deal with that. And like yeah, like like uh, Soka seven eighteen said, eight hundred fifty four four people on bad intel intel that the maybe these were not terrorists, and she got finally. I mean, she hasn't been on the field; she's just been giving the orders. So nobody's right. been, you know, begging to her for their life. You know, so Harold, that, the walls of the stock exchange, yeah, this uh, this is this is gonna turn around, I, I I do believe. Yeah, I did too. I did too. And the last uh, the last uh, uh scene with the Samara kid, we'd seen him once at the very beginning, when he gets a an audience with the chief of the staff, um and the guy thinks he's just, you know, lost from a tour or something like that but he comes back again and he's hey did you look at your computer mike you know he, he, samaritan's on the first name basis with the president's chief of staff and the <laughs> the stock market has rebounded exactly like he would his portfolio has increased exactly like he said it would and my guess is that is going to be he's appealing to you know greed there and he's mm-hmm. trying to get him to Oh, you can you can do this for me. Well, you know, uh, if you know, so, here's the deal with the devil again. Except it's going to be done um, here as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the kid does get in to see the president. How are they going to? Are they going to see the president face to face, or will they be a back of a chair, or mm-hmm. will that even ever happen? But but uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see how they how they what direction they go with that. And by the way, Soka 718 clarified and said, no, she said no, because at that moment she was convinced. No, 
but then we see other people die and um and then we see the doubt creep in so by the end of the episode doubt had creeped crept in but not at that particular moment and that's what I agree with more because I do think that control is a very sharp woman. I think by the end of the episode, she definitely has some doubt. Although I, I think it came a little sooner than that, but I think we all seem to agree that by the end of the episode, but when she's got the paint on the finger, she knows the gig is up. That's right. The white glove test failed. That's right. That's right. Well, let the questioning begin, I guess we could say on her part. And, uh, you know, was it a bookend to a trilogy? No, I don't think anybody thinks that it was because the Shaw element is still out there. You know, Shaw could still be alive. She was at, at some point. How she made it out of there alive, we don't know. I did have a thought, Doug. Uh, tell us. Uh, Daryl. <laughs> I just realized this. I, I hadn't done, I hadn't put this in the show notes. Okay. Here's what happened last week. At the end of last week's episode, here's what happened. Um, Shaw laying there on the ground. Martine's gun pointed at her melon. Martine squeezing on the trigger. Shaw reaches into either her belt or her boot and pulls out a small knife, one that was easily concealed, and jams it into Martine. We hear the bullet go off, the gun go off, but because Martine has been uh, distracted or is trying to move away from Shaw's knife, the fatal bullet does not strike Shaw. Shaw then gets the upper hand on Martine and either kills her or totally disables her. And so because of this small knife, a shank, you could say, Shaw was able to get her revenge. You could even call it the Shaw shank redemption. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> I had that queued up. <laughs> uh, I don't know. We All we know is that Shaw was alive when she left the building. And I saw, I'm assuming she's still alive out there somewhere. And Control does too. So I, mean, I would imagine if Control believes that she's alive, that she really is still. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I know earlier you were saying that, that you, you feel that, that would cheapen her death if they somehow have miraculously pulled her from, from, from death. So do you still feel that way? Or do you want to make, wait until we see how, what the circumstances are? Uh, yeah, it, it depends on how they wind it up. Uh, I would just, you know, just coming back and, you know, hello, I'm, I'm okay, everything's fine. And, or they, they do a little daring attack into some building somewhere and get her out. I don't know if that would be, um, I, I, I think that would cheapen it. But if, okay. they, if they do it really well, I mean, it would have to be something that's, you know, a ma- maybe they turn her into a, a Samaritan automaton or something, something re- that would really, you know, tear at the uh, heartstrings of our uh, of Root and all of our machine crowd. I think that would be the, um, uh, I think that would be interesting. It would be okay. But still, you know, a death scene, if they can come back, quote unquote, too easily, that kind of achieves it. I do still like Doc's theory last week, though, because it was in slow motion. It was some sort of um, simulation. Simulation, uh, machine. yeah. yeah. Um, I, that would definitely be a very feasible reality and, and definitely not cheapen her death, I don't think. Because they built that construct within, to that, within that episode. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, what do you have for us? Surveillance in the news. There's been a few articles this week that have come out. I don't know which one you grabbed. For today. Uh, I didn't grab one from this week. And actually, somebody sent me one. I'm pretty sure somebody sent me one, and I can't find it. Uh, if you sent me something uh, this past week or so, we'll, uh, maybe you want to send it again. I, I may have uh, misplaced it. But I have something here. 
Uh, from the Independent, a newspaper in the UK, baby monitors, CCTV, closed caption TV cameras, and webcams from UK homes and businesses hacked and uploaded onto Russian website. That's the headline. Wow. Yeah. A Russian website has been found to be hosting hundreds of feeds of live footage from inside UK homes and businesses, which have been accessed by hacking into people's webcams, which include CCTV cameras and baby monitors. The UK's privacy watchdog has urged people to upgrade their passwords after the website was found to feature 500 live feeds from Britain alone. The Russian site currently shows what is believed to be a child's bedroom in Birmingham, a gym in Manchester, an office in Leicester, and a shop interior in London, among others. The Information Commissioner's Office has warned people in the UK with webcams using weak passwords or without any password protection will be available to hackers, vulnerable to hackers. An estimated 35,000 of such cameras were sold in the UK last year. Now, a lot of this is passwords for the web, the, I'm sorry, the Wi-Fi onto which the camera is, uh, is, is transmitting. So that, you know, a lot of people plug in these Wi-Fi transmitters and they leave them alone and they uh, have a default password on them. But there's websites. You can go find out what the default password is for a Linksys and for a Netgear and for a D-Link and all that stuff. So, yeah, you really need to, uh, you know, get your, you know, your family uh, geek to come in and put a password on it so that, uh, you know, these kinds of things don't happen. I don't think that these webcams and things like that are are just out there transmitting uh willy-nilly you know into the ether and then you know you would set up your you know your your computer to to read what that what's going on there. i'm pretty sure it is connected to specifically your wi-fi network and so it's it's the fact that the wi-fi network is not secured so set those passwords folks yeah that's that's a bad deal man that's just super creepy yeah, I mean that that's you know somebody uh walking by your house, you know, with a with a laptop, drive by the house and they uh, can they can pick it up pretty easily, yeah. Mhm. Yep. Well, speaking of super creepy, Doug, what do you say we uh listen in on what Barb had to say this week? All righty. <laughs> Hi Daryl and Doug. This is Barb calling in with feedback on Control Alt Delete. I was originally going to give this epi an 8.5, but upon rewatch, I'm giving it a 9.5 Easter eggs in January. Here are some of my observations. Last week's epi was a tough act to follow, and I like that this week we saw how the Samaritan machine viewed the world. It works as quickly, maybe more so than our machine, but I think that it is far more busy analyzing the data than truly interpreting it. It was interesting to watch how Samaritan searched for control when she went off the grid and then went missing by looking in known spots and quickly discarding them versus the way that our machine carefully watched our team last week and analyzed and interpreted how the team would act in different scenarios. I loved watching Harold Finch turn into Ben Linus during his conversation with Control. (laughs) You're in the dark. How long until your employers decide to kill you? That was awesome. Controlled rage, and I loved it. Let's count the operatives. There were six, and one was a Samaritan spy. Who could it be? Fusco knocked out one. John kneecapped a man and a woman that we haven't seen before. Shaw held one woman and Grice's partner at bay, and then there was Grice. I'm going to vote on Grice's partner as the spy because Samaritan saw that Grice let Shaw go back in honor among thieves, and I don't think it told him to do that. I think that Grice may become a team member in the future. Let's talk about Nautilus. 
Samaritan seems to have chosen a variety of people that are sociopaths or could be isolated, people that could be easily expended. The four programmers in this epi were turned from being used by Samaritan into dead men once their mission was done. Remember Crazy Claire? She was the Nautilus recruit we originally saw, and who knows how Samaritan is using her. Interesting how our machine used Root to save people, including at least one programmer, to assist in battling Samaritan, while Samaritan was recruiting people to move further along on its own agenda, its endgame. Our four programmers in this epi were working on bioinformatics, specifically climate change models. Bioinformatics is research which today is primarily in the field of genetics and genomics. To understand disease, desirable species, particularly in agriculture, and the differences between populations. Now recall that in Honor Among Thieves, we saw a virus that was stolen, the Marburg or Marv virus, that Samaritan decided not to destroy, but to keep. This was the one that could wipe out 95% of the population. Mm. What if Samaritan wants to call the population with the virus? It would likely need bioinformatics along with the climate change models to predict the sustainability of the remaining population, socio-environmental sustainability. Or it could be using the climate change models to determine the best way to selectively spread the virus. Either way, I think that Samaritan wants to reduce the Earth's population. Now, in Pretenders, I don't recall what company Elizabeth Bridges had. I know the machine was interested in her algorithms. And algorithms are simply well-defined step-by-step instructions to get you from a point A to your desired outcome. Now, perhaps her um, algorithm code becomes the enabler to perform a dispersion of the virus. For some reason, I thought her company was linked to agriculture or some other green venture, and I'm not sure where I got that idea, and I think I need to rewatch the epi to determine if that's the case or not, but you know that could be part of it as well. Anyway, for my next guess, I think our end of season, not series, Daryl, mm-hmm. epi may be pushing us towards Samaritan trying to kill a portion of humanity and our team working to stop it. Now, that type of an emergency would remove the focus from the hunt for Shaw in a very plausible way. That's it for this week. This is Barb signing out. I need to pull out my quick drawing paint and touch up a few spots on the wall. (laughs) Good stuff. I'm glad she's not uh, preparing for the series finale after all. Good stuff. You know, Barb, it's amazing how she uh, connects so many dots. Mm-hmm. A couple of things I want to mention. Number one, the girl who uh, had solved the Nautilus puzzle at the beginning of the season, I forget her name. I think she was mm-hmm. Claire, maybe. The, we, I, I was thinking, even at, right after that episode, that th- this is the first part of a, we're going to pay off this later on. And that's still going to happen. The f- I, I still, still think that's really going to happen. I think we're going to see her again. The fact that Nautilus has been brought up, you know, just in passing as, as a... Uh, a uh, description of how these guys got doing what they were doing says that yes, this we're not through with her. This is they, mm-hmm. we're going to come back to her. So I like I like how they they're uh, they're setting that up and and just just reminding us, you know, hey, you know, there was that Nautilus thing, right? And also, you talked about how that maybe the uh, that that Samaritan is going to be using that Marburg virus to do kind of an extinction level event almost, uh, or enough to kill a lot of people. I wonder if. Uh, Harold's misgivings about AIs and his his uh, uh, the way he was talking, I believe, to Shaw about it, kind of 
uh, foreshadows something like that. He talked about the fact that, well, what if you had an AI that wanted to eradicate hunger? Well, you could either, it could either, you know, increase, you know, crop yields, or it could just say, well, we'll kill a third of the human beings and hunger's eliminated. Right. You know, it's, it's not, it doesn't have an emotion. It doesn't have a, uh, an appreciation for the individual. It's just numbers. It's just an AI, you know? So I wonder if, yeah, like you, I, I love your little speculation there. And I wonder if that has been already kind of telegraphed to us through that, uh, that description by uh, Harold. Yeah. Those are a couple of dots. I don't think I would have connected either. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad Barb did. That's fantastic. All right, got some more things here. Wow. Um, Andrew J. Let's start with Andrew J. He said, Hi, Daryl and Doug. Hi, Andrew. This was an awesome episode. I don't know if he said awesome that way, but I, yeah, I like that. One thing that has been bothering me since the end, uh, since the episode ended is, did Decima invent a terrorist organization? So that way they can use it to get rid of people that have outlived their usefulness. We can see this is demonstrated by Yasin and his friends in that after solving the Nautilus game, they were employed by Samaritan to do certain deeds and paid large paychecks. And then after they finished their task, they were framed by Samaritan as terrorists belonging to a terror cell. If they did, this makes Samaritan even more of a threat. What do you guys think? Am I right? Or am I just grasping at straws here? Awaiting your feedback. I, I think you, you may have a point there, uh, Andrew. Absolutely. P.S. I noticed... At the beginning of the episode, Profits, this is about when the the, the uh, campaign manager, when it was showing the results of the New York race from Samaritan's point of view, the projected votes for Murray were starting to decrease as the news segment was going on to state a projected Murray victory within a, a 52-48 margin. It's one of those blinker-you-miss-it moments, and it can be picked up if you watch that scene in slow motion. So I guess it was kind of predicting or... Maybe it could tell exactly what people were thinking since it had all, all the video feeds and finding out, oh, know, maybe not this guy. You know, so maybe that's I mean, Samaritan may be more real time than we think. Yeah, interesting. And I, I do think, I don't know that it, it is creating a terrorist organization or just creating the appearance of terrorists, but it definitely seems like Samaritan is, is creating one of those two things and then eliminating people uh, for for whatever reason, either to give either as a diversional tactic to keep control and the people in, involved, you know, keeping them to send the, the, the feeds or, uh, as, as a means of eliminating things that it, it no longer personally finds useful, bad stuff either way. All right. This one comes in from Alex R R I believe he's a pirate. One word. Epic. Epic describes these past three episodes in this trilogy. It describes this whole series, and hands down, this episode was absolutely fantastic overall. Three things. Number one, Sanford Harris hasn't lost that attitude, I see. I see what you did there. Do you know who Sanford Harris is? I don't. He was a character on Fringe that is now the... A jerk of a of a cohort that control is was you know the eight fifty I was eight fifty three eight fifty four guy that's oh that's okay alrighty yeah. I didn't I didn't remember him from Fringe yep same actor he was the guy that Olivia uh, uh, helped the uh, one girl catch on fire and burn to death oh. <laughs> he was a okay. jerk uh, let's see number two Gabriel slash Samaritan Avatar was as creepy as before even more so now it's a brilliant play on the writer's part. 
using a young boy to play the voice and body of an omniscient AI with psychopathic and megalomaniac tendencies. It's absolutely chilling watching him talk in the manner he does, and the actor pulls it off 100%. Number three. I don't think I have enjoyed any scene at all to date as much as the exchange between Finch and Control. Mm-hmm. This episode also had such great lines, and he mentioned, What the hell, Travers? <laughs> which is good. <laughs> there are no good cops here, which is one you picked up on. And I'm glad we had this talk, which is another one that, Doug, you, you pointed out. <laughs> he says, I have my own little prediction. Is it possible that a little down the line, Control will fully realize the extent of Samaritan's operation and the secrets that have been withheld from her, uh, withheld from her and the government, becomes targeted as Finch implied could happen, and brings Team Machine into the fold to help her take down Samaritan and Greer? Maybe she goes on the run herself, and Team Machine bring her into their fold, using her as a way of turning the government on Samaritan and the program slash research, thus igniting the Samaritan and machine war. Food for thought, perhaps. Keep up the good show, guys. This is the one show I look forward to each week, and your podcast enhances the experience. Au revoir for now. That's not American, I don't think. (laughs) Witty sign-off, an expression of the excitement for subsequent episodes. I wonder if that's going to be a running joke here, you know? Yeah, it could be. Could be. We could have this for the rest of the season. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that Samaritan, excuse me, no. <laughs> no. I definitely think Control and Team Machine will be working together in some way uh, fairly soon, but I don't know if that'll actually be, you know, side by side at the same computer terminals or if it'll be, if it will be some uh, less. You know, more subtle, more, more, because I think Control's going to need to stay planted in in the system that she's in, and I think they'll they'll do something where she can help take them down from the inside. I was thinking that if we were going to have anybody, and I hadn't thought about you know putting Control onto Team Machine or, or pulling anybody else into it, but when you and I did this uh, person of interest uh, show for TV talk last season, one of the things we talked about was that the stage was getting kind of crowded and it was then that we lost Carter. And I'm wondering if before they bring in somebody else, they have to get rid of somebody. Like I said, otherwise it just starts getting, you know, got, you know, person of interest becomes half of Manhattan, you know, that's the team. <laughs> so well, yeah, but they kind of have Shaw out of the picture right now. Well, see, that's what I'm thinking. They maybe maybe Shaw is being moved off the stage so that control can be moved on. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, she, I, I don't know if she'll do the same stunts, but uh, she would still have. Uh, she still has the uh, the same uh, the same attitude. Yeah. Okay. Alrighty, we have Doc H, who's uh, coming to us today as H Cod. Doc H backwards. And he says, wow. A few observations about this episode. Control, alt, delete. While avoiding all speculation about future outcomes and possible plot lines beyond this episode, as you guys seemed to really squelch any interest in that type of input or foreshadowing in the last podcast. Did we? Uh, you know, I only think he must be joking because we, we kind of, because uh, Barb mentioned it too about uh, uh 
I, I said something to the effect of, what is it with Doc H and Barb wanting to talk about the end of the series? Oh, you know, oh that, yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> when it goes I think the that's end, what yeah. he's talking about. Yeah. I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Don't end the series yet. Okay. Right. We want 10 more seasons. That's right. And a movie. <laughs> and a movie. <laughs> 10 seasons and a movie. He says, that's huzzah. Right. How about Control. What an ending. I really thought she was going to allow PhD candidate Yassine Saeed to live and not gun him down. It looks like she has sided with Emperor Palpatine hyphen Greer on the dark side of the force. Her daughter seems to be a vulnerability. I think that in an upcoming episode... Gee willikers! This is just what he said. He's No speculation, no Doc. Specu- okay. Fusco was the only comic relief the entire episode. All of Team Machine seems hell-bent on getting Shaw back, although the entire fan base and most of the podcast crew and audience is certain she's permanently departed. I am certain that, supported by what I have said in recent weeks, yowza. Little Gabriel, creepy hippie hair kid, sure knows how to browbeat an executive branch appointee. Thank you. That's good. I bet Chief of Staff's Mike's number one... I'm sorry, let's try it again. I bet Chief of Staff Mike's number comes up, uh, echoing what Finch said to Control about how she has been playing custodial engineer since the Samaritan contract takeover. Where is the United States General Accounting Office, or GAO, when you really need an ombudsman-style audit? And Travers, Samaritan's acolyte, holding Control's leech inside Research's office. He certainly promises to, before the... I am not sure. I think I'm missing something here. He certainly promises to something before the end of the... I wonder if I missed some stuff here. Anyway. Oh, here we go. Top shelf. Grice is a refreshing face following Shaw's departure. I think his heart is good, but I suspect his gal pal is the Samaritan Mole on his ISA hit squad and will... Well, when the and will dot 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 when the show returns during February sweeps month. Oh, okay. I see what he's doing. Okay. Yeah, anytime he, he starts to speculate, he cuts out. <laughs> he cuts out. Okay. What did I say last week that has brought about this type of feedback? Because Barb in the chat room says, yes, you did, Daryl. I don't know what I said. I, I, I'm sure whatever it was, it was in jest, and, and uh, they're now paying me back for that. So, <laughs> Well, at the I end here, Doc H coming. has perimeter alerts. Speaking of janitors, here come six of them now. Talk to me, Crimson. I'm blind here. Time to catch the last train to Canada. <laughs> Uh, I feel bad that that you had to read that with all those weird cutouts. And wow, it was probably spurred by something that I said. You know, Doc. Next time you need to really do this in, in audio. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was good. Okay, I finally figured out what was going on. All right, we have one more from the other Andrew, the the non piratey Andrew. Uh, he says the episode's perspective change is great, and I think its function is threefold. It makes us a closer for the trilogy, with the war's major players all given focus. To that end, it gives us a better understanding of control. And finally, it allows Team Machine's search for Shaw to be more menacing while their efforts are treated as violent crimes involving ordinary people. Irrelevant. The continuation of their efforts leading out of the episode is like a note that lingers at the end of a song and forms the basis for the next piece. Cameron Mannheim's performance is formidable and nuanced. I particularly like the park sequence in which her expressions are tangible, even through the shades. 
Emmy, that is Amy Acker, is incredible in the emotional range she goes through with basically less than one episode. The torture scene might be Root's most chilling action of the series, especially with the score and the lighting. This is not the same effect we get from the taser in the opening scene of Slash, uh, which was also Root, right? Yeah, yeah, the name of that episode. Yeah, uh, this then there's the surprise chill from Michael Emerson having his parting words to control with the gunshots in the background. It's very cool staging. Another effect of the perspective change is that when control is waylaid, we're still under the impression that Yassin Saeed is a would be terrorist. The equally brilliant counterpoint to this is that is the quick machine point of view shots showing a scene with a white rectangle, not only meaning that he isn't a threat, but hinting that Reese and Root are present. I love the whole rail yard set piece for its several moving parts, but I also think there's something inherently eerie about a freight train rumbling through the night. Seeing the stock exchange again at the very end is certainly eerie, like an old battleground but for a very recent battle. All in all, excellent debut for writer Andy Callahan. So his debut, okay, there we go. Yeah, he had mentioned earlier in our chat room that he was fresh off the WB um, writing camp or something, not writing camp, but uh, yeah, he was fresh and, and, and new for this episode, which he did a great job. Yes, very cool. Well, folks, that, oh, man, alive. We had so much feedback. It's great to have it all. It's great to have you all here with us. And uh, if you want to bring your own feedback into this, you can call 304-837-2278. That's our voicemail feedback line. If you can get things to us by Thursday at 6, because we kind of record this, you know, at Thursday around 8, uh, there's another way to do this, goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback, oddly enough. And you can do three things. You can type something in. You can create an audio file, however you want to do it, and then upload it there. Or you can click the little speak pipe graphic, and you can start recording just right on your computer's microphone, and off you go. And uh, so you can we can hear you and 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 catch all those uh, you know pauses when you're trying before you say something that might be a spoiler. <laughs> also, Twitter. We tweet during the episode at POI Podcast GSM. He is Mar Darrell, M A R D A R R E L L. I am at Doug Payton, D O U G P A Y T O N. And on Facebook, we have the Person of Interest Podcast Facebook group. And just search for that. It's probably the easiest thing to do. Yeah, we had some new people join us this week. So yes, welcome. and we also often post, uh, Daryl has uh, last couple of weeks posted, okay, here's your place to to post your uh, thoughts about the episodes, and you can send your feedback there, or you can put your uh, ratings in there. A lot of the ratings came through that, so that was a great source of uh, feedback. And if you like this podcast, just imagine how many other GSM podcasts you might like. Become a fan of Golden Spiral Media on Facebook, and you will find out about all of them, too, whenever they come out with stuff. Yes, indeedy. Doug, what do we have next week? Oh, that's right, nothing. Nothing. We have a State of the Union address, my fellow Americans. I wonder if it's going to be by a uh, like a 
Eight-year-old boy. (laughs) He wanted to see the president. Maybe that's why. (laughs) I got a few ideas for your State of the Union next week. (laughs) The headline for for, for February 3rd, for crying out loud, is Reese and Root travel to upstate New York in their hunt for Shaw on Person of Interest. MIA is the episode, I believe, the episode title. Mm-hmm. Reese and Root's hunt for Shaw take them to a small town in upstate New York, where it becomes apparent that not everything is idyllic as it seems. Sounds like a, I don't know, a Stepford, Stepford Wives movie here. Also, Fusco teams with a former POI to tackle the newest number on Person of Interest. I looked it up. We have the regular cast, and then we had one person on recurring cast. The actress's name is Adria Arjana. Adria Arjana, perhaps? She played Danny Silva. Danny Silva was the undercover internal affairs cop that Reese met in the episode Point of Origin when he was at the police academy. Mm-hmm. So she is coming back. She could handle herself. And so uh, that's, a, that's a great little uh, matchup for Fusco. Maybe she'll be a, a regular here, a regular recurring cast. Yeah. This one is written by Lucas O'Connor and directed by Kevin Bray. So there you have it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I wish we didn't have to wait until February 3rd to get it, but that's what we have to deal with, which means you guys have to deal with none of my uh, great stories about Shawshank's redemptions. (laughs) That was... That was generally not well received in the chat room. I think one person appreciated the humor. The rest were booing me. Some even accused me of throwing a bowling ball and hitting the neighbor kid with that joke. <laughs> now, you originally uh, gave it to the uh, Facebook fan page. I did. And I yeah. think there was more, it was, it was better received there. It still wasn't very well received, though. And I knew when I said it on this podcast uh, that it was, it, it's, it's a pretty terrible little joke, actually. So that's, you either appreciate that type of humor or you don't. And I have discovered because I, I, that is my sense of humor. And I've told jokes like similar to that, you know, quite a few times over my 38 years. And they're generally not well received. So I knew that I was not going to get much appreciation for him that's okay yeah well we liked it we liked it i liked it well we appreciate you tuning into this episode we're looking forward to chatting about mia when it does air on february the third we hope that you'll join us uh, for that episode and until then i'm going to go check my phone to make sure it doesn't have any worms Hmm. and i'm saying if your number comes up we hope there's a man in a suit watching over you not interrogating you. 